Welcome to the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We are your hosts, Michael and Lauren Falk. We are physical therapists, athletic trainers, and strength and conditioning coaches at Kinetic Sports Medicine and Performance. We will be talking all things related to athletic performance for Milwaukee area athletes. Sports medicine, performance training, sports nutrition, recovery, and sports coaching. There's a lot of misinformation and myths surrounding athletic performance and injuries. This podcast is designed to bring current, factual, and evidence-based information to Milwaukee area athletes. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Killian and Dr. Steve Mirko of the Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin. Dr. Killian grew up in the West Bend area and was a standout baseball player. His experience dealing with shoulder and elbow pain while playing led him into his interest in orthopedic surgery and ultimately specializing in the shoulder and elbow. He went to Wesleyan University in Illinois for his undergraduate work and then completed medical school and his orthopedic residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He then went on to complete a fellowship in shoulder and elbow reconstructive surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston where he learned about the latest techniques and technology to help solve patients' shoulders and elbows problems. Dr. Mirko grew up in the Milwaukee area and has been a physician at the Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin for over 30 years. He attended University of Wisconsin-Madison for both his undergraduate studies and medical school. He then went on to complete his orthopedic residency and sports medicine fellowship at Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Mirko specializes in caring for the lower extremity across a wide population of patients from athletes to older adults trying to remain active and maintain a healthy lifestyle. Doctors, welcome and thank you to, for your time to come on today. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So uh, for starters, I'd like to get both of your uh, perspectives on, uh, on what led you getting into uh, the medical field. I'll jump in first, but I, I do want to say it's not even arguable about <clears throat> Dr. Killian and his uh, interest in baseball and being a baseball standout. I mean, he won't bring it up, but <laughs> I think he did hit the, you know, base clearing double early oh. in the game to help them win the state championship. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you. a little shout out, you know. Thank you. So um, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll kick it off as far as how I became interested. Um, you know, I was I also, you know, dabbled in athletics, but I think for me it was more I was surrounded by medicine and influenced not by it being pushed on me. It's just that that my family had a tradition of of the medical field. My father was the uh, first general surgeon in the in Waukesha County. Um, my older brothers were in medicine. Um, one was in anesthesia, one was an orthopedic surgeon, and, and I just was exposed to medicine throughout my life. Before the, the days of HIPAA, you know, we could, we could even observe more. I mean, my, my father would bring me in to go on rounds. I could even watch some surgeries, and um, he would sew up, you know, friends and neighbors in, in the kitchen. they cut their lip or their arm. And it just, I could see how much enjoyment he got out of, of helping people and, and the respect that he had. And, and that's what got me going. That's great. Dr. Killian, what got you into uh, surgery? 
Um, uh, little, I guess a little bit different story than Dr. Merkel in, in the fact that no one in my family is actually in the medical field at all. Um, so I was the first one to, um, to go into the medical field. Even my brother was the first person in my family to graduate college. Um, so, um, you know, uh, kind of deciding what I wanted to do with my life, I kind of had a knack for um, uh, just, I guess, the sciences. Um, I was even like in middle school, really interested in human anatomy. I remember when we first started doing that, I'd come home and tell my parents all these new facts and they were the first people that kind of planted that in my head you know, that, you know, maybe you'd be a good doctor. Um, and then kind of as I progressed, um, you know, I was uh, a big athlete uh, growing up and playing sports and everything. And, um, uh, you know, playing baseball, especially very common with, with uh, baseball players having shoulder and elbow issues. And I, I basically always had kind of chronic elbow pain kind of growing up and um, probably, probably limited me to a degree. Um, so I think I got interested in it because of that perspective and specifically orthopedics is, um, uh, was uh, of interest to me. And then once you kind of decide that you want to go to, uh, if you want to go into medicine, then you kind of decide what field within medicine. So, you know, first year of medical school, um, you're, we you know, you do your anatomy classes, um, and that's where you're dissecting cadavers, whatnot. And, you know, that was the class uh, that seemed to just make the most sense to me. Um, everything was very functional. You could see um, its form, what it was supposed to do, and you kind of um, could learn about, about it in a very intuitive way. It wasn't as abstract as other areas of medicine. Um, in addition to the fact that I, I, I love people and I love interacting with people. And again, that's, um, again, my dad kind of planted that in my head when I was thinking I would go into some, um, some business with the family or these different types of things. And he was the first person that said, you know, you're just, you're good in school. You're great with people. I, I think medicine would be a great uh, route for you. And sure enough, that's the way I went. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. All right. So let's uh, try to dive right into some medical uh, topics. So Dr. Murko, I know you have a, um, I know you do a lot of ACL reconstruction. Um, this is one of the injuries that we actually kind of set our clinic up to, to help manage and, and rehabilitate. So it's a definite interest for us. Um, one of the most common questions that we get from athletes that recently tore their ACL is on graft selection. So I was wondering if you had any kind of guidance or preferences or in, information on uh, graft choice with ACL reconstruction. Yeah, um, kind of tongue in cheek, unless the patient comes in and says, well, my three neighbors had this and they had that and I want this, you know, this, now that the days of the internet and everything, people come in with preconceived ideas. Yeah. That being said, I have used many different graphs and gone in full circle a couple times over the last 30 years. Um, but my preference at this time, I mean, is the patellar tendon, bone, the bone tendon bone graft. And um, I guess for, for people who aren't completely familiar with it, there's, you know, the, the common graft choices are the patellar tendon, hamstring uh, tendons that are folded over themselves, um, quadricep tendon, and donor uh, cadaver donor tendons are the, the common ones that would all be used. Um, I, I have just found in my hands that the, the patellar tendon, bone tendon, bone graft has been a bit more consistent with the outcome. I think they've felt more stable in, when I'm clinically checking them in the office. 
Um, so I, I've leaned that way. Now, times when you can't use that, it's good to have other clubs in your bag. And, um, you know, sometimes you cannot use the patellar tendon because it's either previously been used or injured or somebody has had chronic patellar tendonitis uh, or some other anatomic variations. And then, then I'll use the um, hamstring graft, which is, I think, also very, very good. Um, as far as donor, I'll only use a donor if everything else has been used up already and we're having to do a, a redo or revision, or if it's a bit older individual, um, say in their maybe mid-late 40s, 50s, there's even the unusual patient that's even a little older, and, and if they have a little bit of arthritic change in their knee, um, they have less demand than, a, than, say, a football player or a soccer or basketball player. Um, I'll use a donor um, tendon for that. Um, I, think, um, I think that that about covers it for how I make the choices and recommendations. And sometimes it takes a lot of you know, dialogue with the patient and family and we come to an agreement. Yeah, that, that's kind of right in line with what we, uh, you know, people ask our opinion. We sort of say there's pros and cons to everything. We, our recommendation is always, you know, you probably want to go with what your surgeon feels the most comfortable with. You know, if your surgeon has a preference, like that's the guy that, that's the guy or girl that's, uh, that's in charge. And I'd rather have them do what they really love versus caring that much about exactly where the, where the thing came from. And I'll even add in, even though I don't specialize in ACLs and whatnot, I think um, also from my understanding too, with those young athletes, um, those young people, the reason why you don't use the allograft as much, because I, I believe there's been a lot of studies kind of showing that re-tear rate is a little bit higher in those young patients that are very athletic with the allograft uh, tendon. And I think exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's excellent. So um, I know one of the things um, that's kind of come out over the years has been that generally surgery is delayed um, after the initial injury for, for a period of time might depend on the time of the year and the athlete, how old they are. But um, what, what do you like to see the patients accomplish in this kind of preoperative uh, timeframe? Well, I, I don't, I, it used to be that the teaching was, you know, wait four to six weeks. You have to wait till they have, um, you know, uh, tissues look ready, less swollen, full range of motion. And that, that still is the case. It's just that some people get there more quickly than others. So I, I base my decision primarily on what the knee looks like. If it doesn't have a large uh, amount of swelling or an effusion, um, it can be as early as a couple weeks. Um, you know, a lot of times when this happens to an individual and they know they want to have it done, they want to start their rehab as soon as possible. Um, the other times I will wait longer is if they have a concurrent, say, um, other ligament injury, like a medial collateral that's either a grade two or grade three. And uh, I really want to let that heal before I do their uh, reconstruction. Okay. No, that's, uh, that's good. So kind of for them really making sure that they keep their range of motion, kind of get that swelling down, or it sounds like are the key things that you, you look for in order to do the, the surgery. Yeah. And frequently we'll, we'll have them come to see, you know, come to see you before they, 
you know, kind of, you know, prehab, if you will, to make their, you know, quadricep hamstring muscles in good tone, good strength. Um, you help with their range of motion and then we get on with it. Yeah. No, we like that too. I mean, there's been a couple of interesting studies with, uh, I think a couple of them out of Australia that have shown some like benefits of that, but we would just like it. It's like a nice way to build some rapport with the athlete before they, you know, they're always so sore coming right out of, right out of surgery and everything's unfamiliar and they're nervous. And, um, we've just found even meeting a couple of times, um, has really helped us build that, build that relationship and build some trust, uh, so that you're not touching their knee for the first time right after it, it got cut on the day before. Right, right. So, all right. So um, now after the patients have surgery, um, what are the kind of most important things for them to focus on early on after their surgery to, to try to give them the best prognosis? I try to keep it simple. Um, and, you know, they want to know when they can start therapy and get their knee moving and um, I think that's all good but I tell them what I would like them to focus on is just letting their initial incision and um, uh, the surgical trauma if you will um, calm down let the swelling go down let their pain get under control so they can really work on their uh, range and and I would like to see them early on restore a normal gait um, and um, so that's really and then so I think it's after about probably 10 days to two weeks they're just really a lot more ready to get after it in therapy and then uh, that's when we transfer them over to you no, that's <laughs> and then you work your magic of course <laughs> yeah 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 no exactly I think that's uh that's good advice I think I was always surprised, like, you know, you kind of think of surgery as this uh, super delicate, dainty thing, which, which don't get me wrong, there's high, high amounts of skill and precision involved, but there's, you know, having been in surgeries and watched it, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot that goes on to that joint in, on the operating table, and, and there's a lot of just kind of irritation and, and things that need to calm down, and I think sometimes the patients aren't uh, fully aware of everything that happened while they were sleeping. <laughs> Right, right. So, okay, and then um, kind of the last part is uh, as we as we get into the later stage of, of rehab from these ACL injuries, um, you know, it still seems like in the in the research that there's a higher number of uh, of second injuries um, that that occur with this, and you know, I think it seems like everybody, both the, the orthopedics and the therapists and sports coaches and things, are are trying to figure out what what else you know, we're missing or what else we can do. Um, what do you see kind of as the future or some of the, the key steps that all of us or the athletes could be doing to try to kind of minimize the risk of this second injury and see if we can, if we can decrease the likelihood over time. So with just to clarify the question, are you, are you talking about a second injury to the same knee or their, their other knee getting getting a torn ACL yeah I mean I, I guess both probably I, I know okay. um, it seems like the you know you probably know the research even a little better than, mm -hmm. than I do it seems like um, you know in the 25 to 30 percent will have an injury to one knee or the other um, right right more common the I, other side. yeah I I think that um, 
I think first of all, um, the same side, re-injury to the same side. Um, you know, the tendency is for every athlete to again know three other athletes or five other parents and get opinions from everybody else about when they can return to play. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always tried to stay fairly firm with um, having them not return to competition or cutting, twisting type maneuvers in a competitive environment until they're nine months after their reconstruction. Um, I think that you can get away with it, um, you know, and everybody's built differently. Everybody rehabs a little bit differently and some can rehab and build up their their surrounding musculature more quickly than others but i i think one big thing is being patient which is very hard for them to do yeah um i think as far as prevention as well as some is is some therapy type training that's so-called neuromuscular training to try to teach prevention especially for you know for their opposite knee once they you know torn their one side or even prevent preventive measures as i'm sure you know is going on prior to anybody um, any individual tearing their acl there's a lot of programs that are going on especially for girls and uh, women as you know it's you know it's i think two or three times the rate of tears in males so yeah. that falls under i think rehabilitation and physical therapy and your skills yeah, no, I think I think that time frame is uh is such an important aspect of it. We you know, I don't think it's the only thing. I think there's there's other things that that matter as well, but it seems like that 9 month category or that 9 month time frame just I think it's something like every month up to 9 months uh decreases their risk of a, a second injury like 50%, something like that. And uh um you know, the Adrian Peterson uh uh you know, magnificent Magnificent recovery was was fantastic, but we kind of talked to the high school kids of, uh, you know, a he was a genetic freak and uh, he's exceptional. And that is to say, like those professional athletes, part of why they're getting paid millions of dollars is is they take some more risks that I'm not sure it's worth as a high school athlete to to subject themselves to the same things that some of those guys do. And um, I just think that it's you know, it's just so good to hear other people kind of share that same information about the importance of time and, and giving your body time to recover. So um, I know that ACLs are definitely the hot button topic because the rehab so long, you hear about it on ESPN a lot more. Um, but, you know, the incidence is actually much lower than, than kind of just some of your more generic common, common knee injuries when you, when you look at the frequency of, of what you see day in and day out. So um, one of the things that I think we see a lot of patients that have a um, confusion around is meniscal injuries. So um, sometimes the injury is like, they don't need any surgery. Sometimes they have a minor surgical procedure and they're playing again in about a month. Um, sometimes they're out three, four months or even longer. I think um, in my experience, patients have always been kind of confused by, by why that is. I was just wondering if you give some background into what, what kind of leads to the difference. there. Sure. I think, um, <clears throat> starting at the kind of the most conservative and going um, to more aggressive management or more complicated uh, treatment. Um, some meniscal injuries are minor enough in that they're very small 
tear that's stable um, or they're a tear in a in a uh, in a structure that inherently has a poor blood supply but just happens to be in an area that has decent blood supply of the meniscus and um, so those can be treated um, with observation with uh, kind of changing their um, changing their activity and seeing how they do if they become less symptomatic over say four to six weeks um, I would say it, it is rare that a meniscal tear doesn't need something however especially in a younger individual um, but um, but it can occur um, the ones that are um, the sh have to be treated with arthroscopic surgery that are the quickest return is where there is uh, a small amount of meniscus removed. I typically use the analogy of a, a little area of meniscus that's painful because it's acting like a hangnail. Um, and uh, we go in and we remove that small piece, hopefully small piece, sometimes it has to be larger, but they that almost immediately gets rid of their pain and they can be back to um, many of their activities even earlier than a month can be even at, at, at a week or two um, but the ones that take the longest are when we when there's a large amount of the meniscus that's torn and unstable but is repairable and what makes it repairable is that it is torn in an area where there is blood supply which is only about oh, a third of the meniscus and it has to be torn in a certain configuration um, and that takes really four to six months to heal. And it has a higher healing rate, believe it or not, if, if there's a concurrent torn ACL, because some blood is then produced inside the knee, which in the blood products, there's some factors that, that help promote healing. Um, but probably all comers, there's about a 15 to 20% failure rate of meniscus repairs. And then you have to sometimes go back in and 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 repair that so but it, it's uh correct me if i'm wrong but it, the the repairs end up kind of with a better generally a better long-term outcome of like knee joint health if you can if you can maintain more of that meniscus right and we and we we definitely try to do that um it's just that sometimes if you try to sometimes do the uh put the you know the round peg in the square hole you know it um you try to repair it and then they go for four to six months um and then it still hurts and then they have a second surgery so i fully agree you want to preserve and those are very satisfying when when it is a, a tear in a in a good blood supply area good configuration and you get good healing Oh, that's uh that's great thanks for uh clearing some of that up for people um so then finally one of the last kind of even probably more common than meniscus things that that we see at least a lot in our population and really in patients across the the age span is uh um, pain in the front of their knee um we my wife sees a lot of the runners in our clinic and and i'd say you know a good chunk of her caseload is is uh people that are dealing kind of with this pain it's been called many things over the years, but frequently it's called, you know, patellofemoral pain or patellofemoral pain syndrome. 
Um, I was wondering from a doctor's perspective, what you see in this patient population and what your recommendations would be. Yeah, this is definitely one of the more frustrating um, diagnoses um, because it's not a quick fix. It's sometimes quite ill-defined um, and it's hard to put your finger on it. I, I find these particular individuals you know, require sometimes the most time in consultation with because the last thing you want to, you know, your client or patient to do is you, know, you go through all these, these explanations after your examination and taking history and for them to leave your office feeling like, well, he just told me I didn't have anything wrong with me. And that's not the case at all. It's just not something that's easy to, to you know, put your finger on. But I think patellar pain or kneecap pain comes from a few different possibilities commonly. One in the runners, if it's on the lateral side of their knee, a lot of times they'll have an IT band tendonitis. Sometimes you can even feel some, some uh, noises or crepitation. It gets so bad. Um, sometimes it's something that's called a excessive lateral pressure syndrome where their kneecap is tilted and in the, while the kneecap is going back and forth on the railroad track, if you will, it's putting there's a little bit more pressure on one of the rails than the other, and that can cause pain. Um, I think people can get kneecap pain from, you know, first I talk to them about their, their equipment, their shoes, uh, they, you know, how many hundreds of miles have they been running on them, um, whether they're running on trails or not, um, their flexibility. If they're an infle inflexible individual, I think they're more prone to patellofemoral problems. Sometimes we'll recommend um, orthotics for their, in their shoes, which can help how the forces are transmitted up in, into the kneecap area sometimes some medications, over-the-counter type things, um, braces. It's just, you can see there's a, we, we, we try trial and error, various sundry different things, um, depending on which problem we think it is. The more, most drastic is, it's not really the patellofemoral pain syndrome, it's patellar instability where their kneecap jumps off the rail. And that, that's a different pool of, patients and problems, but these are definitely challenging. Um, I think a person needs to expect that they're going to have some amount of flight discomfort on and off, but we hope to decrease it over the course of, of some weeks to a few months. Yeah, I think uh, it's a can be a tough thing. One of the things that we've, uh, we'll use as an analogy with the patients is it's we use uh, kind of the concept of the envelope of function that, you know, at some point they were doing all their activities with no pain and there was usually some instigating event and they just gradually tolerate less and less activity. And, you know, we've got to figure out kind of what, what led into that and then come up with a plan to just gradually increase the tolerance and the stress tolerance of that, of that joint and surface till they're able to get back to doing the things that, that they want to. But, it's often a little slower um, progress than what they'd like to what they'd like to have um, happen. We just try to get them to to kind of stick to the stick to the process and stay kind of slow and steady with it and avoid 
you know, going and avoiding the urge to go and run the 50 mile race when they're only run three so far without pain, things like that. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, Dr. Killian, you still, you still with us? Not too bored about talking about I'm good. (laughs) You want to jump into some shoulders? Sure. Why not? (laughs) All right. So, uh, um, we see a lot of, uh, shoulder pain at our, our clinic. Um, you know, we do a lot of baseball stuff, but kind of even across all the patients that we see just active, active adults to, to the athletes, every patient seems to have the same concern. It's always like, well, are you sure my labrum isn't torn? Um, I know that you see a lot of labral injuries in the shoulders. Um, what do you want, you know, what do you wish more people understood about the labrum and, and its involvement in the shoulder? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the labrum is the kind of rim of cartilage that goes around the socket of your joint. So, you know, there's a um, shoulders ball in a socket joint. And then on the socket side called your, your glenoid, there's a rim of cartilage called the labrum. And that adds stability to your shoulder, adds depth to the shoulder. Um, you know, your shoulder joint is a really uh, shallow socket um, compared to, to your hip joint. Hip, hip joint is similar, um, but it's a much deeper socket. Um, so with the labrum, um, you know, there are, there's kind of three main areas that we t- talk about when we talk about labral tears, um, which is the most common in, um, in throwing athletes, overhead athletes, baseball pitchers, um, is the superior labrum called, um, people talk about, a, it's called a slap tear, which stands for superior labrum, anterior to posterior. And then there's the posterior labrum, and then there's the anterior labrum. So those are kind of the three main areas. Um, so that slap tear area is the, usually the, the area that we're talking about uh, when we talk about throwing athletes and whatnot. Um, tears of the labrum, where that labrum starts to kind of peel off a uh, portion of the, that glenoid or the socket, that's actually incredibly common, um, especially in overhead athletes and especially in pitchers. Um, the, the thought is, especially with pitchers, that it's, it's an, actually a natural adaptation um, to tear your labrum so that you get better range of motion. So, you know, if you took MRIs of every pitcher out there, the vast majority would actually have labral tears. And say, so if you want to see a slap tear, just get an MRI of a throwing athlete. You're going to see it in pretty much everyone. Um, but that being said, the majority don't need to have surgery. Um, you know, the, you know, if, if, um, if we do get that MRI showing that slap tear, um, just because it's there, doesn't need to, doesn't mean it needs to be fixed. The, the usual course um, with those type of uh, patients is dedicated physical therapy. Um, the thought is if, as we improve, um, how you're moving your shoulder, both moving that shoulder blade and your arm bone, your humerus, um, do a better job as we strengthen uh, the muscles that surround your shoulder. Um, as we strengthen those muscles, it does a better job of keeping that ball seated in the socket. Um, so we improve our muscle strength and coordination. And then as those bones move, um, we want to do it in a way that keeps that ball nice and seated and centered in the socket. Um, so if we can do that properly and kind of, you know, teach people to use their their shoulders properly, um, the vast majority will never need to undergo a surgery. The thought is if you start fixing these in all these overhead athletes, you're going to take away their ability actually to throw harder. Um, you're going to take away their, sometimes their natural ad- adaptation to, um, to, to throw that hard. Um, so there are some, the majority of labral tears that we'll see are kind of a nat- natural adaptation. There are some more that are a little bit more pathologic and those are probably ones that are getting a little bit more into that posterior area um, and coming back essentially down the back of the glenoid. Um, those are thought to be a little bit more 
um, problematic um, and may potentially require a surgery. And that even being said, you know, um, you know, if you do need a labral repair and you're, you know, uh, a throwing athlete, even there's been several studies. Um, one of the, the White Sox doctors, Dr. Tony Romeo, who's the head of the Shoulder and Elbow Society in America, um, he does a lot of talks about professional athletes and the return to sport rate is actually relatively low. It's something about approximately two thirds of pitchers will get back to, to sport um, if you have to repair their uh, a slap tear or labral um, tear and only about 50% are back to their, their same level. So just because you're even, if you have that and it does, you know, doesn't get better, it does require surgery. It's still um, difficult to get back to a very, very high level. Um, so people shouldn't think, oh, just because I get the surgery, I'm going to be good to go or whatnot. So that's why we really like to ma maximize non-operative treatment. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's good advice. That's what we tell people too. We're like, most of the time the, the doctors will let you fail conservative treatment once and maybe let you fail again a second time. Uh, you know, we work with a few uh, professional pitchers and I just did a very informal survey of uh, of them one time and and all of them, 100%, would rather have Tommy John over um, over yeah. a labral injury in their shoulder. Absolutely, you know they they are very very terrified of the shoulder pain stuff. So they'll yeah. deal with the elbow; they don't want it. But uh, mm -hmm. it's very true. Yeah, the return to sport with Tommy John is much much higher. But once you get into shoulder uh, issues, again, we're going to see labral tears in a huge uh, population of those pitchers. But you, if you do end up going forward with the surgery, I mean, again, it's not as uh, clear and concise that you're going to be returning. Yeah. So um, how uh, I think one of the things that people get confused about is, you know, in that there's, there's these different types of labral injuries. So, you know, we kind of talked a lot about the throwing athletes, but um, what, what happens with, with the labrum when, when an athlete has like some of the episodes of instability or where their shoulders um, popping out, is that the same thing or are there differences there? Uh, yeah, it's, essentially, it's a completely different population of patients, completely different pathology problem, uh, treatment, and whatnot. Um, so shoulder instability is very different than those slap tears. So when, um, when someone's shoulder pops out of the joint, that's a shoulder dislocation. Um, approximately 90% of the time, it's going out of the front of their shoulder, where their humerus bone comes forward compared to the socket. And that's about 90% of the, the, the instability. Um, issues that people will have. So um, there's still kind of a great debate to a degree about as far as what we do with what we call the first time dislocator. So if, um, you know if you pop out of the joint you're, um, one time and you're a young athlete, um, the chances are that at some point in your life that you're going to dislocate again. Um, so uh, but there's still a portion of people that if you pop your shoulder out you'll the shoulder will remain stable. Um, so if you are that you know, that young athlete, you know, 16 years old and you're playing football and your shoulder pops out of joint. Um, uh, there's some studies show between 50 and 90% of those patients will have another instability episode in their lifetime. And we know that every time your shoulder does pop out of the joint, more injury occurs to your shoulder. You can start to actually break off a small portion of the bone on the socket. And then you actually get a big dent in the back part of your humeral head called a Hill-Sachs lesion um, that, um, that, as that dent gets bigger or the bone starts to wear away at the front part of your socket or the glenoid, which is called a bank heart injury, um, we know that you're more prone to developing instability. You're more prone to needing a shoulder replacement at some point in your future. You're more likely to have injuries to your biceps. Uh, and um, the, the main thing that does happen when you 
we know pretty much every time if your shoulder pops out of the joint, even with the first time, it will tear a portion of your labrum and a little bit of the capsule. So and that's kind of the anterior, inferior, or front and bottom area of the socket. So, um, so the, again, so the, kind of that great debate is with a first-time dislocator, do we just go in and do surgery right away to make them less likely to have that instability in the future? Um, you know, again, this, you know, some people will never become unstable. Maybe, maybe they just have that one event, but we know with high risk activities, like, especially like football um, or any high contact sport type activities, that rate is so high that you kind of have a discussion with the patient and usually their family, as far as, do we just want to go in and do that? If, if they are a young athlete and they've had two events, then kind of, it's already, the, the story has been written, probably should go in and just do the surgery. Um, so. Um, so and for the surgery, what we do is we essentially repair that bottom front part of the labrum and bring up that, that labrum and the capsule to kind of recreate the bumper um, of the labrum. Because the labrum is essentially a bumper that kind of helps keep that ball seated in the socket. So um, with the surgery, that's what we do. Um, and then, you know, the other main treatment, which um, treatment option that we have in people that develop more of that bone loss that have had recurrent instability is a thing called a Latterge procedure. And that's essentially where we take um, bone from your coracoid, which is a part of your shoulder blade, and we kind of move that part of the bone to the front part of your socket so that there's essentially more bone, making it less likely that that ball is gonna come out of the socket. Um, an analogy we use a lot of times is um, with golf. You think of the golf ball sitting on the tee. If that you remove a portion of that T, the ball is going to fall off. So once people get to the point where a fair portion of that T is gone, uh, that's when we have to add more bone to it. So that's a little bit more invasive uh, type of procedure. Um, uh, so certainly if we can avoid it, we'd like to, um, but still can have very good outcomes and people can get back to full sports and doing everything they want, even with that procedure. Um, but obviously we got we to gotta make sure that their shoulder is, is stable. Um, because again, every time it happens, you're doing more damage to your shoulder. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's really helpful. I think that's one of the things that just seems to confuse a lot of uh, a lot of patients. You know, they hear about the the NFL player that has a labral injury, and they're a baseball pitcher, and they think it's the they think it's always the you know the same thing. There's just mm -hmm. one labrum. Yeah, um, okay. There's just these different areas of labrum that make a big difference, um, and they're completely different from one another, essentially. Yeah. Oh, that's a. Uh, it's really, really helpful. So moving uh, away from the, the labrum, I know you've uh, developed a little bit of an interesting niche because I've heard some of the uh, cool surgery stories around fixing uh, muscle ruptures, yeah. um, shoulder and elbow. Um, so what are some common um, muscles that, that can kind of tear, be injured in this way? And uh, what do people need to know about it or try to do to prevent it or um, do if, if it ends up happening? Sure. Um, yeah. So, um, I've recently, had, which we've talked about, I've recently had a string of people tearing their pec muscle, the pectoralis major. Um, it's usually most commonly in um, young people, especially uh, heavy weightlifters. Um, and it, the, the classic or stereotypical one is doing bench press. And actually, I've had a string of people recently, and it was all doing bench press exercise. Um, so, you know, they, your, your pec muscle has a couple places where it comes from. It comes from your sternum and your clavicle. Um, and they insert onto your humerus bone um, and um, essentially you can rip it right off the bone, which is not a fun injury to have and is painful and, uh, and requires a fair amount of rehab and everything. So, you know, probably the biggest thing, number one, stretching um, before you do any of the, these exercises. Um, uh, 
two, trying to minimize the super, super heavyweights um, and using correct, correct form and technique with it. Um, uh, three, certainly um, avoiding any type of steroids or any type of things like that. Um, uh, pretty sure that uh, some of the people I've done recently have been using those type of things. So um, that, that, I, that certainly plays a role uh, in these type of things happening. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's number one, our, our pectoralis major uh, muscle ruptures, uh, ruptures. Um, the other one I just had recently was someone uh, tearing off their triceps muscle, the triceps tendon, uh, from their elbow. Um, so, uh, you know, your triceps inserts, um, right at, it's called your olecranon, which is right at that elbow, the tip of your elbow. And this person was actually a super fit, healthy guy and actually was starting a new exercise in his garage, um, doing heavy sandbags behind his back um, and wasn't wasn't doing it properly and went to super super high weight right away because he's a big strong guy and even with that big strong strong guy ripped off his entire triceps um, so and you have to repair it back down to the bone and again even with this and triceps injuries I mean you're looking at six plus months of rehab and some studies even show closer out to a year before you can get back to full heavy lifting um, so, um, those are two big ones. In addition, there's two different areas of your biceps that you can tear. Um, generally that's less likely to be that younger athlete, but, um, people that are sometimes usually a little bit older, almost always men, you can tear it at your elbow, in which case we do talk about a surgery. The other spot where you can tear it is actually up at your shoulder. Um, and that's usually one part of your biceps as opposed to the entire uh, portion down at your elbow. It's usually one part of your biceps. I'll call the long head of your biceps, and usually we can treat that actually without surgery with the, that one up your shoulder. So, um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. That's the one, I'm just going to say that's the one that um, most people know of as is the, where they get the Popeye yep. muscle. Yep. Yeah, um, yep, and that's the, the Popeye deformity, Popeye muscle. And again, usually not the young athlete population for the most part. It's usually people that are 40s, 50s, and above. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think one of the things that we talk about with uh, with people just in general from a from an activity standpoint is is you know always trying to make sure that you go up by like small increments at a given time. You know, rather than you haven't touched a weight in you know because you got busy at work for the last six weeks, don't go back and do the exact same thing that you were doing the last time you worked out six weeks ago. You know, kind of go backwards, start slow, and build build slowly. And I think. Sometimes that can help with some of these, you know, some of these like just big, big injuries like that, whether that's running, whether that's lifting, um, those yeah. types. And that's a, that's a great point because, I mean, again, it only takes one time to just do it incorrectly with some heavy weights that you shouldn't be using. And then, then, then that's it. You're, it's torn, it's ruptured, you're done. So being smart every time you're starting some, some sort of workout routine or heavy weights, being smart with it because it can change just like that. Yes. No, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, I know kind of one of your um, specialties is in shoulder reconstruction, shoulder replacements. And I know there's kind of been a trend or, or we're seeing, you know, younger, not the young athletes, but kind of active adults um, that are needing some of these uh, reconstructive surgeries or replacements early in, earlier in life. Um, what do you see as, as leading to that? And um, what kinds of things can people be doing to try to keep their shoulders healthier longer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, like you said, generally, um, you know, shoulder reconstruction or shoulder replacement um, is a surgery for older people. Um, once you kind of worn out the joint, once the cartilage is gone, 
that is what arthritis is, is wearing away the cartilage of a joint. Um, that being said, I, I've had a, also a string of, of younger people, um, um, actually in their, I've had one recently in their late 30s, um, a couple people in their very early 40s, 40, 41, 42, um, that already essentially need shoulder replacements. Um, and um, the commonality with all those people is that they're very heavy weightlifters. Um, so they're, they're doing that, you know, super heavy bench press or, or incredibly high weights over prolonged periods or essentially their whole life up to this point. Um, and makes them, um, as a result, uh, wear away their cartilage at a much quicker rate. You know, a lot of people, probably there's some genetic component for some people, um, why they, their cartilage wears away quicker than others. However, still a commonality with all those people is that they're, they're lifting super, super heavy weights. Um, when they probably shouldn't be, you know, as, as people get older, um, probably transitioning to more conditioning type exercises and lower weight, lower resistance, um, is, is much more important than trying to have the biggest muscles possible, um, because those big, huge muscular people have worn out joints as a result. And the last thing you want is to be a 40 year old that already has a joint replacement, uh, because at some point in, you know, based on the studies and the, you know, the materials we're using, at some point in their life, it's going to wear out and they're going to need another surgery and then it kind of gets complicated and messy. So all I can say is you don't want to be in that scenario and that all has to go to prevention and being smart with what you're doing and um, using proper technique, being smart um, and not going to those super, super heavy weights when it's really not needed beyond that young competitive athlete maybe. Oh, interesting. All right. So one of the things that I know I enjoy the most about the, the medical field is that it's kind of always... Uh, always changing and evolving. So I'd be interested in, in both of your perspective. Um, what do you guys see as like the next big thing in, in orthopedic surgery or orthopedic kind of care and management of, of uh, patients? I'll let you go first, Dr. Merkel. Uh, okay. I, you know, it's, there's a lot of things that do kind of come and, and go. So I don't always like to be the first adapter. I don't mind being the second or third after it has some uh, proven uh, benefits. Um, but I think in, in terms of the uh, population of people that might be listening uh, to us speak today, um, in, in the sports world, it might be more in there's so many people that are um, developing newer devices in arthroscopic and lesser invasive surgical um, approaches um, to make it, like I said, lesser invasive and, and quicker recovery. So we're always, when, when we go to our, our meetings, uh, one of the places I like to, to frequent is, the, is the, the exhibit hall a lot of times where you can see all the different companies and their different devices. And um, it's kind of like being a kid in a candy store a little bit. It, it's fun, fun to see and many um, really uh, catch on. Um, I think uh, there's this whole world of what, what's called orthobiologics, and uh, people have heard about stem cells, and there's other things like uh, platelet-rich plasma. These are blood products, and um, I think that, that there's will probably be some advances um, over, over time from these areas right now. I think they're all very experimental, and um, I think People should be um, should be 
very questioning and reserved about jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, I think just to wanted to, um, Dr. Killing and I were talking, you know, before we, we went on the air a little bit so that people understand about stem cells, that it's not going to give new structure inside, in, inside a joint. It can help with pain potentially by, de by helping the environment decrease some of the cells that cause pain, maybe, maybe not, maybe for a longer period of time than a typical cortisone injection. Um, but I think that, that those are the, the, you know, the things that might help, you know, some, some of these orthobiologic agents, um, some of the overuse injuries, tendonitis, things like that. I, I don't know if Dr. Killian has other, other yeah. Kind of along those lines, as far as the orthobiologics and stem cells, you know, the thing I try to um, let people know when I get question, questions about it, especially, you know, like, let's say you have a significant arthritis or a torn rotator cuff where the rotator cuff is torn off the bone. Um, no stem cell or nothing in the world at this point is going to um, reattach your rotator cuff to the bone except for a surgery. Um, nothing in the world is going to, um, you know, with arthritis, the, the bone actually changes shape. Um, nothing's going to change the shape back um, of that bone um, except for a surgery essentially. So um, essentially say pr proceed with caution and um, the possibilities that it may have some sort of um, anti-inflammatory effect to modulate that pain, um, but it's not going to regrow uh, tissue um, by placing it there. So essentially there are some instances where it may make sense, um, but maybe not as, um, wide of a breath as maybe some people think it might, it will. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's interesting. I'd say that's the, the couple of things that people always ask us about. And I, I don't know the science nearly as well as you guys, but right now it's, it's stem cells and CBD oil. Um, you know, and I'm like, I just don't think the science is there yet. I'm not saying it's, it's going to be eventually, but, uh, you know, I, like what, um, Dr. Marco said about, you, know, you probably don't want to be the first person. <laughs> you don't want to be the last either, but there's a, a middle ground uh, before you jump in with both feet. So These people are, de are desperate. So, you know, desperate feelings will, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're latching on, you know, in this day and age right now in the midst of this whole COVID crisis and pandemic, you know, we're, they're talking about, you know, chloroquine pills or they're talking about this or that you know we want to believe so much about certain remedies that that will latch on and try it but we there has to be better studies yeah okay. um, also along the uh, the route of um, advancements and whatnot i know dr merkel and i are both starting to do different surgeries with navigation again that's not as much of the younger population to a degree but um, so when we do different joint replacements nowadays, there are different navigation techniques using computer-assisted or, or robotic-assisted navigation to make us more accurate, more accurate when we're putting our components in. Um, so that's a, a, a big thing that is changing our field. Um, in addition to one other thing that, not necessarily orthopedics, but um, for our patients that are having surgery, um, our anesthesiologists um, do different uh, nerve blocks nowadays that can make essentially surgery less painful. So there's different um, medications. One I've started using over the past several months called Expiril. It's a nerve block agent that gets slowly released over two to three days. Um, and 
Um, there's more and more studies coming out, and, and I would anecdot anecdotally say my patients tend to have less pain after any surgery, whether it be labral repair, rotator cuff repair, shoulder replacements, whatever it might be. Um, people are tending to have less pain as a result of it and not needing the narcotics, which is great. Yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, well, uh, real quick, I'm gonna, one more question. So, um, you know, we might have some younger younger athletes that are listening to this, and um, I know we have a lot of our clients that kind of, after going through their injury process, they're, they get very interested in the medical field. Some of them um, get interested in the, the physical therapy side, um, but we have um, several that, you know, end up wanting to go into medicine. So um, just any, any quick advice for a, a younger person that may wanna, try to become a doctor or an orthopedic surgeon. Jillian, do you want to? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll take it first. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm closer to the process, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, obviously number one, first thing you got to do is you got to do well in school. Um, you got to get good grades. Everyone kind of knows that, I guess. Um, but really, um, you know, as you're getting to the process of applying for medical school or going through college, applying for med schools, um, and even in high school, um, one of the things I, I, uh, when I went to the Medical College of Wisconsin, if you're in good standing and a third and fourth year student, you can actually be on the interview committee. So you kind of see what they're looking for. Um, and one of the big things is uh, making sure people realize what they're getting themselves into. So volunteering, um, doing some sort of research within the medical field can be extremely helpful. Um, uh, you know, shadowing different doctors that you know, or just reaching out to doctors that you don't even know um, so that you can kind of understand uh, what you're getting into. Um, so I think that's uh, really important um, just to, to kind of show people that you have that perspective and you're not kind of blindsided once you get to med, med school, you didn't, you didn't know what you're getting into. Um, and obviously you got to have a knack and a, um, interest in, again, anatomy, science, math, and those, those types of subjects. Uh, and then even once you, let's say you, um, you're in college and you're interested in even let's say orthopedic surgery, um, I would say keep your options open. Don't just narrow it down to one field that you want to get into because the majority of people will change what they want to do. Um, you know, a lot of people will go in thinking they want to be a pediatrician and then they become a gynecologist or whatever it may be. So just be open. Don't necessarily be set on just orthopedics or just this or that. So kind of be open to what you're getting into. Yeah. So piggyback, piggybacking a little bit on that, <clears throat> I think just the, I think uh, medical schools and admissions committees, a lot of times will, when, when, a, when a student applies and doesn't get accepted and they go back um, and they ask, well, what, do, what can I do to improve my application? I think more often than not, they're saying, you know, to illustrate more, you know, they wanna see people giving back to their community or giving back to global communities, you know, where, people are going on mission trips and this and that there I I think and it needs to be something fairly consistent not not just checking off the box and doing something for a week or you know there's people who tutor other you know younger kids there's people who go on a mission trip there's people who help out at food pantries there's they want to see people that care about other people um, and then make, I think Dr. Killian mentioned this, just make sure that, that you're doing this for the right reason, that it's not for, for money or for fame, you know, certainly we'll have com comfortable life, but you know, it, that it doesn't work if that's all you're doing it for, 
we have to be really uh, passionate about um, caring for, for people. That's awesome. Great advice. So, all right, we're going to uh, finish up with a quick lightning round. Um, so my wife, Lauren, has been the research assistant and has, uh, has asked uh, either some of your kids or, or uh, wife for a couple of uh, fun questions to help people get to know you guys a little better. Um, before we go dive into it, I do, you know, want to take a minute and just say, you know, to those that, that don't know, uh, Dr. Mirko, I know your family is, is, like you said, a family of doctors, and I know you've got kids and, uh, and their spouses and stuff on the, on the front lines with the uh, COVID thing um, right now and dealing with that in California and New York, some of the, some of the hot spots. So just want to say thank you from, from all of us to, to what you and your family are doing to try to help others and, and help you. the country right now. So with that being said, a couple of fun, <laughs> fun questions. So mm -hmm. Dr. Mirko, I know you're an avid golfer. Um, I was told to ask if you've had any hole-in-ones. <laughs> oh, funny you should ask. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, one of them was in the presence of Dr. Killian and, right. and my son, who, you know, was a, a professional golfer at one point. And in fact, uh, Michael, your wife, Lauren, knew, probably knew, he knew your wife before you might have known her because when yeah. she was an athletic trainer. But my, um, my hole in one that is shows that there that there is a golf god was at uh, TPC Sawgrass number seventeen, and it was I think June twenty fourth in two thousand two. But you know who's counting? <laughs> um, and it was just pure. Uh, you know I I I just I can't I couldn't believe it happened, but but I can. You know, my, my golf days could be over tomorrow, and at least I could say that that, that happened. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for asking. Thanks yes, for asking. absolutely. Okay, and then uh, I also heard that, um, you know, not to sell your own high school athletic standouts uh, short, but I heard you were the standout athlete at ULS, and it's is it true that you still hold two um, athletic records at the school? Oh, I wonder who you must have been talking <laughs> to. I don't even know about this. This is interesting. Yeah, one was um, – <clears throat> one was the mile, running the mile, and uh, it was a under five-minute mile. It was a 4.46, I remember that. Whoa. One was free throws percentage. That's and, you know, but maybe I could teach Giannis a couple things. I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and, and I don't know if that record still holds or not, but that's way back when. And, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's fun. All right. Uh, Dr. Killian, with uh, two young kids at home, what's your favorite Disney character? My favorite or their favorite? <laughs> I guess either one. <laughs> well, I'll tell you at least my, well, nah. right now we're super into Cars, the movie Cars, so Lightning McQueen. Actually, I hear my son having a meltdown because we, we lost Lightning McQueen this morning, so um, we're, we're going to have to find him soon, but he's probably one of my favorites, and then for my daughter, probably either, of course, Frozen um, okay. or Moana. So okay. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take any of those. I like cars maybe just because they're cars, but you know. Yeah. Well, there you go. Then Dr. Murko may have given you away earlier, but uh, as a, as a high school baseball player, do you have a, a career highlight? <laughs> Funny to ask. Um, no, I'm all, um, my, my crowning achievement or whatnot in sports was um, 
back in high school in 2002, we were in the state championship. Um, and I got up in the first inning um, with the bases loaded, two outs. Um, I got to a full count and I hit a double to the wall, scored three runs. Um, so we were up 3 0 there. Um, we ended up, um, actually, one of the guys from my team was on, the, ended up making it up to the San Francisco Giants, won the World Series with them. He was our pitcher. He also hit a home run at every game in state from Ryan Rollinger. So, uh, game ended up getting tied six to six. We ended up, went into extra innings, and then one of the guys from my team hit a walk off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to win the state championship. So uh, we won seven to six. I had three RBIs in that game. So it was pretty cool. That's awesome. Very can, cool. Yeah, Michael, can I throw in my one baseball highlight? Please. Fresh, freshman in high school, got my first base hit, got to the first base, and went down to the oldest trick in the book, you know, where the pitcher comes over and talks to the first baseman, and then I lead off, and, and, and the first <laughs> baseman's ball. got the ball in his glove. and <laughs> Hidden ball trick? Talk, hidden ball trick. Talk about being embarrassed <laughs> <laughs> that's my highlight yours is much better than mine uh, that's a good one though <laughs> there you go yep. all right well uh, dr killian dr murgo i really appreciate your time today it was a great conversation and i hope that the milwaukee area athletes and families are able to take a lot away from this interview um where could our listeners uh learn more about you guys or or find you online um our group um has a, a website um, it's www.orthowisconsin.com. Uh, and then in addition, um, um, I, myself, I have my own website called shoulderwisconsin.com. Uh, and then our general group uh, number for appointments and whatnot is 262-303-5055. Perfect. We'll, uh, we'll make sure that gets in the show notes. Um, so thank you again for your time today. And thanks to everyone that was listening. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search MKE Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, it will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we will see you next time.